Hello, and if you're listening to this, then I hope that means that you're listening to episode two of The Nightcap. Uh, in this one, we go through the five things that we think that you should know, and we also talk to a good friend of mine, Jake. We discuss the NFL free agency and the ins and outs, which teams we think are on the rise, and which of the teams we think have lost their minds. And then we catch up with Drew for a little bit just to talk about the Final Four and head into the weekend. As always, guys, we hope that you are also listening to the Pour Up podcast, which comes out on Wednesdays. If you haven't, feel free to catch up. We're three episodes in on Season 3. And I hope you guys enjoy Episode 2 of The Nightcap. Like, listen, follow the vision. Mike, hit the music. Nightcap. I am your host, John Michael, and here are the five things I think that you need to know. The U.S. and China seem poised to start what looks like a nasty and extremely costly trade battle, despite almost every politician in the U.S. being against a trade war with China, well, except for President Trump. So why is the president considering a trade war? The main reason is because China has dumped a bunch of steel and aluminum into the world market, causing a glut and driving down prices across the board. This drastically affects U.S. interests, since President Trump brilliantly claimed that he would bring steel and coal back to the forefront of the American economy, kind of makes him look bad. So in typical President temper tantrum style, he has decided to slap them with tariffs and threaten a trade war, despite politicians, CEOs, and advisors insisting that this will only hurt U.S. consumers. It seems unless Fox News decides to run a story about how it's a bad idea, he's just going to continue going on. And for the first time in U.S. history, the NASDAQ will list a weed company on the stock exchange. And the Canadian Kronos Group has gone through the long and arduous process of being certified under the Kron symbol and can be traded as soon as this year. Now, despite weed being only recreationally legal in nine states and medically legal in 29, it is illegal to the federal government. This continues one of the largest dichotomies in the U.S. culture. On the one hand, to the populace, weed is fine. 61% of the U.S. approves of weed being legalized recreationally. 56% of the baby boomers support it. And getting 61% of our population to agree that a restaurant is good on Yelp is one of the hardest things you can do today. So getting them all to agree on one thing is damn near impossible. But yet, the politicians are still lagging behind. We talked about this last week, but March of Our Lives took past this took place this past weekend in Washington, D.C., but also in cities around the world. From South South Africa to South America to Asia, over 800 sibling marches happened. There is not a firm number of the participants that attended the Washington, D.C. marches, but it is estimated that around half a million people were there. 4,000 new voters are registered to vote. With the midterm elections only seven months away, it is about time for Washington to realize that gun control and common sense gun legislation is on the way. If you listen to the speeches and the stories coming from these kids from ages 11 to 17, you've got to take, just take heed and look at what what is happening in this country. And it seems like a movement is beginning, and I hope a movement doesn't start. Stop. Black Panther. 
a movie that has, if you have listened to the Pour Up podcast, which I hope you have, you know that I am very pleased with. I've been critical with superhero movies, and anyone that's been on the Pour Up podcast or has listened to it understands this. I personally think that Modern has done a bad job of creating bad guys, and in the same vein, creating real emotional stakes. No one cared about Sokovia falling out of the sky, and no one really knows who any of the bad guys were in any of the Thor movies other than Mike. But Black Panther managed to create a real villain, someone that was completely believable, and someone that in his core was actually right. He made the Black Panther change his mind, not only invent a new weapon to defeat him, but now the Black Panther had to reinvent himself to truly defeat him. But that is not the only thing Black Panther has now done. Black Panther is now the number one highest grossing superhero movie of all time. It's breaking through barriers that were once believed that minority-ran casts and minority-predominant-rolled casts could not make money. So I hope, from what we've seen at least, this is opening new doors for directors and for producers and for actors to get leading roles in movies, and I hope that this continues. Because what we're learning is that we need people to look up to, too. Now, yes, real tangible heroes need to be highlighted and need to be on the forefront of what we see in the news for minorities. But it is also really cool to see someone that looks like you being a superhero. And for the final thing that you need to know, the final four. Now, if you listened to the podcast last week, Drew was uh, pretty right on some things. And I'm pretty wrong on most everything. But I was right with uh, thinking that Villanova would make it. We have two of the stalwarts being there with Villanova and Kansas. And what I was talking about with Michigan actually turned out to be right. A hot team going through their conference tournament actually ends up being hot in the tournament and has made it to the Final Four. But we still have Linola Chicago being there in the end. Let's see what happens. I'm interested. And baseball is kicked off, so we got a hell of a sports weekend to look forward to. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Now let's get to the interviews. What's up, and welcome to the Nightcap. On here we now have Jake a good friend of ours. If you listen to the Pour Up podcast, he has been on before to talk about football. And here he is. How's it going, Jake? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. How's it going, man? We're getting ready to talk football, man. How, how are you feeling about your boys uh, after the season? I know it didn't end the way you wanted it to, uh, but, I mean, you were, what, a, f- a finger joint away from catching a touchdown pass and playing the Vikings in the next round of the playoffs? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what happened. Um, uh it was disappointing, to say the least, but the season was pretty up and down, so expectations were kind of tempered to begin with. Yeah, I mean, you got a, your team lost in the Super Bowl in one of the like hardest ways that anyone has ever, if not the hardest way anyone's ever lost Super Bowl before. And historically, teams don't even make it to the playoffs after they lose in the Super Bowl. So, I mean, it's pretty commendable that you guys made it to the playoffs and then to take the Super Bowl champion that far, I feel, was... Uh, it's it's at least something that you can look at and go, well, we just went through all this shit and we still made it somewhere, you know, somehow like where we are with, you know, it's something to hang your hat on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I remember the Super Bowl you're speaking of <laughs> at all. So. <laughs> well, man, let's look, let's look at free agency, man. Free agency kicked off uh, the very beginning. The first thing that happened was the uh, Miami Dolphins franchise tagging uh, Jarvis Landry and then trading him to the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns look like they are trying to change a team in one offseason. 
<laughs> they've loaded up on yeah. draft picks. They've picked up uh, receivers. They've picked up. Uh, they lost Joe Thomas and their offensive lineman that's been there for ten years. But they have been making a hell of a lot of moves. They have. They have. And in my opinion, um, they've probably had the best offseason uh, of any team in the NFL, which is surprising because the Browns. Yeah. You know, they're historically bad at everything offseason. So, really surprising. Um, I think they did the smartest move they've done in 20 years by picking up Tyrod Taylor. That's securing a position that's been a problem for them since 1999. So, so do you think he's the answer for them? Because a lot of people are thinking that they're going to draft a quarterback number one overall anyway, and I personally don't think that they have to do that. But a lot of people think that they're going to do that anyway because I don't think any NFL pundit other than you know Bomani Jones and any other you know black ESPN person actually supports Tyrod Taylor on that network. But Tyrod Taylor, to me, has the talent and the ability to be a starter in the NFL, and I feel like he's definitely better than anyone else they have on their roster right now. Correct. Uh, I mean, I was looking up Tyrod Taylor's stuff uh, just, you know, earlier today. And, I mean, he his, per, his completions percentage is in the low 60s, um, but he still had a decent amount of passing yards. And he had 400 rushing yards, which is third um, only behind Russell Wilson and Cam Newton. Um, I think he's – they traded a third-round pick for him. I think he's better than right now – he'll have more of an impact on that team than any quarterback that they will draft this year. I also don't think that they need to go out and get a quarterback either. Um, I think they probably will only because next year's draft class, uh, next year's yeah, next year's draft class isn't as strong in the quarterback position as this year is. Um, so I think they might still go and get one early in the draft. And maybe they, maybe they pick Saquon Barkley, number one, drop the number four pick back a little bit, um, get another, pick and trade for it and then maybe pick up Lamar Jackson would be my guess because uh, he would definitely be someone who could use uh, Tyrod Taylor's knowledge of already being in the NFL and translate right over to his game yeah see my thing that I was hoping when I look at the Cleveland Browns and I look at like how they're set up they picked up a couple offensive linemen since losing Joe Thomas their defense is really really strong their defense if you if you watch them they have the potential to be a very good defense and I think if I was their GM, the first thing I would do is take um, – I would probably take the defensive end from North Carolina State with the number one pick. Strictly because they took the defensive end that they had last year, he played. When he got in there, he was really good. If you have two bookend defensive ends, I feel like they can dominate offenses with two bookend defensive ends. And then, like you said, I with the number four pick, I'd probably try to go Saquon Barkley or I'd trade it back and take a quarterback or – um, maybe trade into the into the first round with a, what do they have? Um, I think they have a, two second rounds and three third round picks. After the first round, they could trade back into the end of the first round and pick up Lamar Jackson. I don't think another team's going to take him in the first round. That's, that's a possibility. Some people are projecting them late first round, early second round. So I mean, if he does keep sliding, they have the first and the fourth pick in the second round. They could easily pick him up there. Yeah. Um, I think. I think you definitely have to go Saquon Barkley, number one. Um, I think that he is a transformative player for them. Also mm-hmm. solves the position they've had some problems with over the past years. Um, so, yeah. So, the, the signing of Tyrod Taylor was definitely, in my opinion, 
the best offseason move that move they made because it secured a position that everyone needs uh, with a competent player that they've not had in that position in quite some time. Yeah, and if you look at their, if you look at like, if you just look at their depth chart now with um, their with Gordon Jarvis Landry. Um, and then you have uh, Njoku, who they drafted last year from Miami. And then you put Saquon Barkley, Duke Johnson as his backup, and Tyrod Taylor. That looks like an offense that should be able to win a game. And that is really the standard that they're living up to, is winning one game. <laughs> because they did not do that last yeah. year. And then they, when you set that as your floor, you have you can obviously make progress. And I think they're, I think they're in the market to do that. Um, other than uh, the Cleveland Browns and their activity, surprisingly one of the other most active teams that was in the NFL was the St. Louis Rams, or not St. Louis Rams, the LA Rams. Now the LA Rams have stocked up on every free agent corner in the league. I think they picked up Sam Shields. They picked up Richard Sherman. They traded uh, Kansas city for their number one cornerback. Um, they are loading up and it looks like they are trying to get over the hump and they signed an in, Indobican Sue. Sorry. I forgot that one. Wait, who was it that you mentioned? They, I said they traded for Aqib Tlaib. They traded for, um, oh, not Richard Sherman. They didn't get Richard Sherman. They got Aqib Tlaib. They got um, Kansas City traded them. Uh, their cornerback, it happened at the beginning of free agency um, for uh, like a couple of draft picks. Then Dobkin Sue is now on the Rams. Um, they have loaded up on cornerback. They've loaded up on defensive line. They've loaded up on pretty much any position that they could. Um, and I think the Rams are probably one of the team, if not the team to beat in the West, maybe the team to beat in the NFC going forward next year. Yeah, I they did lose some players. Um, they lost Tremaine Johnson. Um, they lost Sammy Watkins, who who went to you know the the Chiefs, the Chiefs, and <clears throat> that was a they gave him a lot more money um, than I I think they overpaid for him. Uh, and his services, but I think the Rams, as long as Jared Goff continues to progress, um, I think they're going to be just fine. Sean McVay has proven that he is a fantastic play caller, and he has groomed Goff to be good with Todd Gurley back there, and and then they did bolster the defense. They did kind of start a fire sale towards the end of you know the beginning of of the off season, kind of getting rid of some old pieces. Uh, and they really got a steal getting to leave. Um, that was they robbed the Broncos basically. Yeah, I feel like they loaded up on a lot of talent. I, I do worry, um, kind of like with the Philadelphia Eagles the last year, Chip Kelly. Whenever they loaded up with all those free agents, remember when they picked up? You know, they spent a bunch of money in the free agent market, hoping to get over the hump. I worry that with Aqib Talib, he's coming back from an Achilles tear. With Nindab Kinsu, it's a personality issue. With um, the guy that they traded for, with the, I cannot find this. The guy that they traded for, uh, Kansas City, who's a three-time Pro Bowler. I should know his name. Um, anyway, they traded for him. I worry that, like you said, Sean McVay made amazing strides with the Rams last year. He is also the youngest coach in the NFL. I worry that loading up on maybe negative personalities or really loud personalities might be too much for him to handle in his second year. Um, being that those personalities were really hard for other coaches to handle that had been in the league for decades. Yeah, that, that could very well be a problem for him. Yeah, so I'm, I'm interested to see what could happen uh, with the Rams. 
what about your uh, Atlanta Falcons, man? How are you feeling about going into the next year? Uh, I know you guys have lost. I think you lost a couple of players. I know you lost some people on the defensive line. You lost Adrian Claiborne. You lost uh, Duntari Poe, I believe. Um, and yeah. but I think yeah. I think overall, I think you're a little confident going into this year. I am. I think they still have really the core. I'm there. I know we lost Duntari Poe and we lost Adrian Claiborne, um, but. Tack McKinley looks to be like that dude. Uh, so I think we're going to be okay there. I will definitely, I think the beginning of the draft, defensive tackle for sure. I don't know which one it's going to be, um, but it's going to be a defensive tackle in the first round. Unless something crazy happens, um, I wouldn't even, I would almost expect for them to maybe jump up some spots to get a guy that they like if they really need to, because that's the biggest need. We need someone next to Grady Jarrett. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think you guys do too. I think the one thing that you can never discount and the one thing I worry about with your team with losing defensive linemen is that is one of the rarest commodities on it in the NFL is solid interior defensive linemen. And I think it's really underrated because a lot of people focus on the people that get the sacks, but the guys that get the rush up the middle and the guys that can, you know, really wreck havoc and the wreck, wreck havoc don't necessarily get the sacks, but they're the ones that disrupt the game. They, they disrupt the running game. They disrupt the passing game. And I, and I worry about sometimes undervaluing positions that are more important than people realize until they watch film. Yeah, you're definitely right. It's definitely going to be something that we're going to have to watch this season uh, to see how it plays out, to see if whatever piece they do fit in there makes a difference, what the rotation looks like, too, because if we're down two defensive linemen and we add one first-rounder because we haven't added any other defensive linemen up to this point in free agency, um, so if they don't add anyone new, how are those new guys that are going to plug in, fit into the rotation, how they're going to work out? I mean, we have some other guys like Derek Shelby and um, Crawford that got hurt early last season, so you didn't see them at all you know, last season. But we'll see. It's definitely going to be – if there's a, if there's a part of, of the Atlanta Falcons that's going to lead us down the road of ruin, it's a defensive line this year. Yeah. Well, uh, other than the Atlanta Falcons, the one, the other side of the Super Bowl that you choose not to remember is the is the uh, New England Patriots. And I think after watching the Super Bowl, where we saw Tom Brady throw for 500 yards in that offense, despite being down, uh, that maybe their best receiver and having Gronk coming off a concussion and having what looked like no semblance of a running game, um, they still hung in there with the with the Philadelphia Eagles, but it is clear that they have no type of speed on the defensive side. And it kind of looked like, I wouldn't say, I won't say that it's the, the coming to an end of a dynasty, but it definitely looks like there's cracks in the armor of them just being penciled in with being there every year. Yes. Yes, it does. And eventually one day father time will catch up with Tom Brady Maybe five years from now, who knows? One day it'll happen. Uh, the defense does appear to be getting worse. I, I thought the Patriot way has always been kind of like, oh, well, when a guy gets too demanding or he wants too much money, uh, we just kind of send him somewhere else. And we just find the next person and we plug him in and it works just fine. Well, you know, they traded Jamie Collins away because they didn't want to pay him. And they never really got a replacement. And it just the next side, the next pieces they decided to plug in when they lost players just didn't seem to fit the way they fit in the past. Yeah, 
And that's the one thing. Like they, Bill Belichick over the last few seasons has let go of players like Jamie Collins, and who went to other teams and has done really well. Now, yes, they did, they were going to demand high dollar on the market, but that's one thing the Patriots have been very smart about. They've paid in certain instances, or at least made team friendly deals. And I think that the Patriots issue, which I feel like they've made the mistake on, isn't necessarily they still get rid of players. I feel like it's at times right right at the perfect time but I also feel like they have missed the boat on players that they've drafted on signing them a couple of years earlier and saving themselves big time so if you sign Jamie Collins not like if you sign him um before picking up his fifth year option like on his third year of his rookie contract and you extend him there you keep him for two or three more years probably to the end of his prime and then you can let him go where he then goes and gets that landmark deal and you can go, okay, we kept him for the height of his value. Instead, they let him get to the end of the contract and they trade him on his last year because they're like, oh, we don't have the money to pay that. But you could completely have avoided that. Same thing with Malcolm Butler. If they would have, after the after that uh, the Super Bowl interception, noticed the talent and what he would probably garner and sign him to a smaller extension right then, you save the the infighting and what happened where he gets benched for the whole Super Bowl and they were not better with him off the field. I don't care how bad of a year he had. They they let up 500 yards, of, almost 500 yards of passing to Nick Foltz. They weren't better with him, not on the field. I agree. And, you know, my opinion when it comes to the Patriots is completely biased and unreasonable. So I'm going to go out there and say that maybe the Patriot way has gotten into their head and they just think they can fit anyone into those positions they want regardless of, of whatever moves they make, and maybe that's starting to backfire. Maybe their overconfidence in their system is starting to wear on them. Yeah, and one of the most overconfident things they did was trade Jimmy Garoppolo to the 49ers. And the 49ers, it seems like, have completely turned around at least the the trajectory of their franchise. I don't necessarily know if they're going to be a playoff team next year, but they def, they look like a completely different team with that guy at the helm of the, the roster. And he had no wide receivers. He had Carlos Hyde banged up. He had what looked like no offensive line, no defense. And he came in and he won, what, six games straight? Yeah, he did. He did. And then they gave him that, that big contract. Yeah, it, it, which that's another thing. If the 49ers would have gotten Jimmy Garoppolo and signed him the moment he got on the roster before he played a game, because it was obvious that he had some talent, you sign him to a four or five year deal where you pay him what, like $13 million a year, which is the going rate for a quarterback, which I mean, Mike Glennon got 15, you sign him to 15, you save yourself $10 million a year, but instead you let him <laughs> play out the season, ran six in a row, and he's Joe Flaccoing you all over the NFL market because you have to pay him $115 million. It's insane. Yeah, or someone else will. Or, or someone else will. I mean, look at look at what they did. That's the next thing we should talk about is Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins doing the gist move possible and getting a fully guaranteed contract. That that's that's NBA level. Like that's unheard of in the NFL to get a fully guaranteed contract. Yeah, it's it's something they said would never happen. Yeah, and and, and in my opinion, I don't know that the Vikings traded up necessarily i mean i know that they got kirk cousins he has he has a higher ceiling than case keenum but he has a lower floor also okay so it's, what were you saying because the narrative is the i think i think the narrative that that is being sold at least is that like case keeling case keenum ceiling was last year 
and then that's Kirk Cousins' floor. Like, Kirk Cousins just does that on average, what Case Keenum did on his best year. I don't necessarily know if that's true. I think Kirk, Kirk Cousins is the wet blanket of quarterbacks. I don't think there's anything exciting about him. I think that he's going to go out there and he's like, yeah, I threw for 4,200 yards and 35 touchdowns. But And crunch whenever you needed that fourth and 18. He's not going to be Aaron Rodgers. He's not going to be Tom Brady. He's not going to be Drew Brees. Hell, he might not even be Russell Wilson. And that's something that you need from a starting quarterback that you hope is going to win the Super Bowl. That's that's what I meant by I don't know that he traded up. I don't know if they if they traded up by getting Cousins over Keenum because outside of the just numbers, if you put numbers aside, they're kind of the same player. And I don't know that getting Cousins really puts you over the hump the way that, that they think it did. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I don't think I don't think it does. I do think they're the one team that was set up to if we can fix this one position, we can win the Super Bowl. I think they know that. I think that it's well, them and the Jaguars. The Jaguars are the two teams that are looking at their rosters and they're like from head to toe, there is no reason why we shouldn't win the Super Bowl other than this one position. And that is the hardest position in football to find a find a suitor for or find a position or find a player for. And it sucks, but those te- those two teams are loaded. The Jacksonville Jaguars were head to toe better than the Patriots in in the AFC Championship game. That they were the better team, head to toe, head to toe. Other won. than the, other than the quarterback, other than the quarterback, they, and they still should have won. They still should have won, but Blake Bortles couldn't complete a third and fifteen. See, it would have made more sense for to me if Cousins had gone to Jacksonville uh, rather than the Vikings because Blake Bortles is proven that he is inconsistent if not anything i mean he is the most inconsistent quarterback he has a great game and then the worst game it's so up and down Mm -hmm. no i agree i agree and i think you're being nice by calling him inconsistent i would call him incompetent when it comes to being a quarterback because it literally it looks like i don't know if i i watched the usf play when i was in college and you, I remember when Matt Grothy was doing really well and people were saying that he should win the Heisman. And I was like, a guy can't win the Heisman when all he throws is a slant route and an out route. He only had, he could not throw the ball 25 yards down the field with accuracy. When he threw it down, it looked like you were in backyard football and your friend was just chunking the ball up for 500. It was the aim, most aimless shot down the field. And that's what, when Blake Bortles throws deep balls, I promise to God his eyes are closed. It's the worst thing in the history of football, watching him throw the ball deep. And... I, I don't know. Then they re-signed him. They signed him to a big extension. So I mean, I but I will tell you this: Kirk Cousins leveraged the hell out of the NFL, and I am, I admire him for it because I think the NFL is better suited. I think the players are better suited for this because the NFL Players Union has done a lot to handicap veterans with the rookie wage scale, with the influx or with the with the fran- franchise tag, and with the influx of young talent. I think that veterans are you know, really at a disadvantage. And I think that Kirk Cousins doing this and then uh, surely Aaron Rodgers doing this next. I think that we're looking at a situation where players like, I don't know, maybe an Aaron Donald, maybe an Odell Beckham. Those are players that could command fully guaranteed contracts. And maybe we should, we could start seeing this become a pattern. We could, we could. I mean, Matt Ryan's contract. I mean, this is like, we're going into his last year of his contract. So, that's something that they're trying to get worked out currently. 
um, is getting his extension done. So I don't know how much of that's going to be guaranteed. Um, I know they're wizards with numbers and whatnot. And they can move money around to where it doesn't hardly impact the team at all. Mm-hmm. But well, my thing is, the guarantee is unprecedented. Well, well my, my thing is, if you had the opportunity to get a full guarantee, if I offered you, hey, we'll pay you $60 million on a $100 million contract over six years, front load the guaranteed money, and then it basically breaks down to three years, $60 million, you know, instead of six years, $100 million. It basically, basically breaks down to where we're only guaranteed that you're going to make $20 million for the first three years, and then you have no guarantee on the fourth year. Why wouldn't you take, like, four years... You know, why wouldn't you take four years, like less years, maybe less money per year, but four years guaranteed instead? I, 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 for me, I don't understand why you wouldn't take a little less money or a little less years to take a fully guaranteed deal instead of trying to get the big, what looks big on paper. Like Kirk Cousins, yeah, Jimmy Garoppolo has a $115 million contract, but when it breaks down, if he has a terrible year next year, they could cut him after the second year. So, I mean, a lot of these contracts are really rigged towards the team. And I think that for, for anyone, it just shows if you bet on yourself, you know, it'll pay off. As a wide receiver, I think yeah. you'd be willing to take like $9 million a year if you can get it fully guaranteed for four or something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, it's a big risk for the team, right? If, if Kirk Cousins, you know, if he goes out and he gets injured his first year and he's gone for the whole year and, or, you know, or his career, they got to pay him regardless. Yep. So. It's that way. It's like that way, like it is in the NBA. You know, you pay the guy whatever you get, you you agreed upon to begin with. Yeah. So it's a big risk for the team. It def- they were definitely thirsty for a quarterback. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. Uh, one team I wanted to talk about. We mentioned it briefly, but the Miami Dolphins did a purge of their roster. They got rid of Jarvis Landry. They got rid of Indaba Kansu. They got rid of a lot of what they were calling bad personalities in the locker room. Are you in the same idea that I think they just basically cut all their best players and they're saying, like, yeah, we, we have a locker room that we can control, but if your locker room sucks, does that really make you a better team? Like, just because you can control them? Like, you can have the bad news no, bears, they but they've fallen in line. What does that fucking matter? <laughs> What's that matter, you know? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're placing themselves in a position to be the new Browns. With the Browns getting better, um, they, they basically did a fire sale on their best players. Um, and I mean, cause the Cleveland Browns, I believe they gave up a third round pick for Landry. Mm-hmm. I mean, Landry's a good wide receiver. You're not going to get that caliber wide receiver in the third round. So, I mean, it's a no brainer for the Browns. Mm-hmm. And it, so far the Dolphins really only signed one free agent um, of note. And that's Frank Gore, which doesn't make it. I mean, I understand he played at the university of Miami you know, I'm sure he has ties there. He's but it's for the Dolphins organization. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense for the Dolphins organization because he's only got a couple of years left at best. And your team is not ready to win. It doesn't make any sense, in my opinion, for Frank Gore either because he should have gone to a team that's at least a contender at this point. I mean, he's still almost a thousand yard rusher a year, but go to someone who needs that, who's closer to the playoffs because the Miami Dolphins are nowhere near the playoffs anymore. No, and I think what they tried to do was, the, I think what they're going to try to do is like pair uh, Frank Gore with Kenyon Drake. 
Um, because Kenyon Drake, like every other Alabama running back, has never been a solo running back in the backfield. They've always had something in tandem. So I think they're hoping for a bruiser up the middle while Kenyon can you know, do what he does on the outside. But at their wide receiver position, without him, they have Grant and Stills. And then I think they released Julius Thomas, or they're planning on releasing Julius Thomas, so they have Anthony Fasano as their starting tight end, and Fasano's never been a receiving tight end, but he's definitely not going to be in his 30s. I mean, their offense looks terrible, and I mean, it kind of looks like the Dolphins did the same kind of roster moves that the Marlins did, which was get rid of all of our good players to save us some money for a little while. <laughs> and it just doesn't yeah. look good. Except for in baseball, you actually get to hold on to that money because there's no salary cap. In football, you have to spend at least a percentage of it. So I don't know what their plan is necessarily. It just they don't. I, they've had the worst offseason, in my opinion, of all the teams. Yeah, yeah. One of the w- one of the, the worst, at least, because for them, like with them and the Seattle Seahawks, is pretty. For, they're neck and neck with probably the, the worst off season in the world to me. I think the Seahawks. I think the Seahawks are going to land Demarco Murray. Um, he's a serviceable back for them. They need a running back. They haven't had a good one since Marshawn Lynch. Um, I think that they'll come out better for that. And yeah. Yeah, I think that they, I if they landed Mark or if they landed Marco Murray, I think that's a step in the right direction. I just worry about losing so much of your team culture. Um, especially in the secondary, uh, losing Richard Sherman um, and then losing Bennett. I feel like you lose – now, yes, they're loud in the locker room, but that's never been something that Pete Carroll's really shied away from. So I worry about losing that much after losing Marshawn Lynch um, and then losing Jimmy Graham. I, I know that you maybe never had chemistry with Jimmy Graham with Russell Wilson, but I don't think you get better losing that caliber of a tight end. Um, so, I'm, I mean, it's a little up in the air for me. Um, one of the teams that I, I, I do want to touch on briefly before we have to wrap this up is the Philadelphia Eagles, the Super Bowl champions. They have been extremely aggressive in the offseason, including signing players whenever they're over the salary cap. And I'm not really sure how you do that, but they were negative $11 million in the salary cap and continued to sign people, which is pretty interesting. I guess they have to make sure before the, before, uh, the draft or something like that they get under it, but they're making some moves. They are. I mean, the biggest issue, obviously, is the salary cap. So you can't even sign your rookies if you're in the negative. Um, so I don't know what their plan is there. They must have some uh, one of those number wizards hanging out, telling them that everything's going to be okay. Um, they, they went out and they got <clears throat> Bennett, which I, I understand that that was a loss for Seattle, but with recent events, uh, Seattle might have actually missed out. Uh, I might have missed... Uh, a big issue with him coming up with that felony charge. So yeah. the Eagles went out and got him, and now he's having those issues. Um, they have made some wide receiver moves. Yeah, they picked I, up I mean, Mike Wallace. I gonna be, yeah, I think they're probably going to be okay again next year. I, I don't see any reason why they don't make the playoffs again. <clears throat> Carson Wentz will come back. Um, in my opinion, they should – they should probably trade Nick Foles, although I don't know who's in the market for him currently. Um, but his stock is up right now, so they could get something in return. Also, dump a little bit of cap space if they get a pick or something in return for it. So I don't know. 
Yeah, with with the Nick Foles thing, I'm in the belief that you hold on to him as long as you can. I would hold on to him until week 16 if I could. I would hold on to him because the longer you have a Super Bowl winning quarterback on your roster, the more value a Super Bowl winning quarterback is, and they have him on the roster for $7 million. I think that what what it broke down to was they have Carson Wentz and Nick Foles on the roster this year for under $20 million. And that's less than like the top 10 quarterbacks are getting paid by themselves. <laughs> and so I would hold on to that just because he's coming back from Carson Wentz is coming back from an ACL injury and you don't know how quickly he'll be able to do that. You don't want to have to rush your young quarterback when you don't need to. Nick Foles is 29 years old going into the season. Um, I, I agree with you. I think they might have the most dangerous between the Seattle or the, between the LA Rams the Minnesota Vikings and the Philadelphia Eagles, I think you have an arms race on the defensive line. I think that they just have outrageous amounts of talent, and I think that they're really stacking it up, and I think the Philadelphia Eagles look poised to make a run at it. But the one thing that Philly had on their shoulder was a chip, and that chip is no longer on their shoulder. They have won the Super Bowl, and let's see if they can just bring it whenever you know teams are gunning for them. I think that's the one thing that you know Mike's sitting here producing it, but when the Bucks won their Super Bowl – the next year, every team brought their A game for the Bucks, and it was a lot to handle, and it was a lot of uh, a lot of pressure to handle being the Super Bowl and try to re- repeat it. That's why it would makes what the Patriots do every year so you know so you know awe inspiring. It is, it is. And they are they are setting themselves up for a window, you know, a window of opportunity to continue to compete for a Super Bowl. Uh, that's the kind of the window I believe the Falcons are sitting in right now. So it doesn't last super long. No. Because, you know, you have to start paying those draft picks that you get. You know, you have to start paying people that are on your team that are performing well. And then eventually it starts to crumble a little bit. Yeah, and I think that everyone's kind of going along the Seattle Seahawks uh, blueprint, which is get a quarterback when they're young. Get a get a young base, draft them, develop your own talent, and then you have a four to five year window. You have a fifth year option with a lot of those players, and as long as you can keep, if you get a quarterback young like a Russell Wilson, like a Carson Wentz, like uh, the Dallas Cowboys have, if you can get that quarterback in young, get him around a good nucle- nucleus of other young players, ride that out, and you have a five year window. The Seattle Seahawks had that five-year window. They're outside of it now. And then keeping those players becomes really expensive and really hard to do, and you start to have to pick and choose the ones that you want to go with, um, i.e. the Oklahoma City Thunder. They had, a, they had a core of four young players, and they had to pick one. Unfortunately for them, they just picked the one that never is going to win the MVP. So it, it, with, with the Seattle Seahawks, they doubled down on Russell Wilson. They started prioritizing the offense and not prioritizing the defense, and we'll see how they survive that. This is the Philadelphia Eagles thing, and that's what happened with the rookie wage scale. You can leverage that, and let's see what happens with the Philadelphia Eagles. And I, I agree. I think your Atlanta Falcons are in it too. I think last year was their first year they started to have to start signing people. They signed that running back for that $40 million deal. Um, they're going to have to start re-upping Julio, re-upping Matt, Matt Ryan, and I think it'll start becoming more selective with the players that they're going to be able to keep and kind of what they're going to have to hope to just not miss on a draft pick. Because if you miss outside of that window, you're done. That's exactly right. Yeah, you have to you have to nail it in the draft when you're in the window because those are the players you're going to get the most value out of. You don't have to pay them yet. Because next year we're going to have to pay Grady Jarrett, 
Um, we can pick up another year option on Beasley, but we're going to have to pay him eventually also. So it's, it's getting to the point to where you can see the window start to close because a lot of these players that are good, Deion Jones, you're going to have to pay them soon. So as soon as you start having to pay them big money, it's going to start constricting the players that you're able to get and able to hold on to. Yeah, and I and and I think that's one thing that when you talk about missing on draft picks is my team, the Colts, which uh, I we're we're drafting three. Uh, I think they talked about draft trading down. Um, I think if no one picks Chubb up, I think we'll go for Chubb, being that we have uh, Luck coming back, and then we have uh, Jacoby Brissett, who showed a lot of potential. I think that he landed himself another NFL contract if we end up, you know, parting ways with him. But uh, I we missed on draft picks for six years under our last GM, and we we missed on first rounds, we missed on second rounds, we missed on third rounds. I think when we looked at it, I don't think we have a single first round draft pick from our last five years on our starting roster before last year. So. Uh, I mean, if you miss, you set your franchise back, and that's why Andrew Luck was off that team, and we won two or three games. You just can't miss in the draft whenever you have a window with a young quarterback because now we have to pay Andrew Luck $100 million. Yeah, you can't. And, and speaking of the draft, your Colts are drafting sixth this year because they robbed the Jets. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, they traded down. I forgot. Yeah, you just... Yeah, uh, the, uh, the most unproportionate trade I've ever experienced ever seen in my life uh, was the Colts and the Jets trade. The Jets gave up this year. They traded places in this year's first round and two second rounds and a future first round to move three spots. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. We talked about that on text message the other day. Yeah, I, uh, that is the, one of the rare moves that the Colts have made that have been uh, pretty uh, – that have worked out in our favor. Um I, and I think that's why people are talking about possibly three quarterbacks being taken with the first three picks. But the Jets making that big of a swing at a quarterback whenever how, – how many quarterbacks have the Jets drafted in the last few years? They've drafted Hackenberg, Geno Smith, Mark Sanchez. They have been taking swings at quarterbacks, and they've never gotten the good quarterback in any draft. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know. I think they should try to probably try to build and use those drafts to put a team around a quarterback, much less just draft a quarterback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're kind of starting to follow that old Browns model, where you just keep swinging at the quarter. You know, you keep swinging at a quarterback, and it just never happens. Mm-hmm. And 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 on top of I, the thing that confused me the most was they had just signed McCown again, re-signed him for I think two years, and then they turned around and gave up the world to move up three spots to what is looks like they're going to trade their future. You know, they're going to draft their future QB at. I don't know why you give McCown that contract if you're just going out to get a new guy. You don't cuz I, I want to say it was like 10 million a year or something like that. It yeah, wasn't it, a small contract. No, no, it wasn't a small contract and I the most ironic thing in the world would be if they go and take Sam Darnold. If they go and draft a USC quarterback after what happened with Mark Sanchez and then they put him behind McCown and then try to play him, it would be absolutely hilarious cuz that kid like I always say with Jameis, he loves throwing to the other team. He loves throwing to the other team. <laughs> he would <laughs> he will throw four touchdowns in a game, but he will damn sure follow it up with three interceptions. Yeah, yeah. The quarterbacks in this draft, there's a, a there's a ton of them, and, and they're all kind of around the same skill level. And it's a little they've all got 
at least one flaw. There's not that one guy out there that's like, oh, yeah, that's the guy we need. That's the guy who's clearly head and shoulders above everyone else. They're all kind of in the same grouping. So moving up three spots to get a guy that isn't that much different than a guy that would be available at number six seemed like a not good move. <laughs> Did not seem good. Yeah. Well, um, I agree with you. I think that, that we have a, a pool of about seven quarterbacks. I think that they're talking about possibly going in the first two rounds. I think that Lamar Jackson, um, I like the kid out of Oklahoma State, and I like Baker Mayfield. I like players that, when I watched them play on Saturdays, looked good, on, looked good during the game. Because you can show me the measurables, you can tell me they're tall, you can tell me they have a strong arm, but if I watched them play and they looked uncomfortable and they looked like they'd like to throw interceptions – they're gonna. They're, those are habits you can't unlearn, and uh, I trust what I see on the field. But uh, other than that, man, um, I, I thank you for coming on the podcast, man. And I always enjoy talking football with you. And uh, I, I'm I'm rooting for uh, your your Falcons to make another year and come back. I mean, I think what what is it that every year there's a new person that wins a, the NFC South every year? It's never been the same person twice. Correct. Yeah, not the same team's not won it twice. Yeah. So uh, I think it's the it, Mike, Mike says it's the Bucks year. This is their year to win it. Yeah, it was last year too, right? <laughs> nah, all right, man. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. And for everyone, this is Jake. Thank, thank you, man. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you very much. All right, guys. What's up? We're back for the second week with Drew Imhoff. How you doing, bro? I'm good, Jam. How are you today, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. I am um, excited to talk about the Final Four. I think we got a little bit of predictability on one half and a little bit of surprise on the other. How, how do you feel going into it? I'm excited. You know, it's always good to see a Cinderella get into the Final Four. Um, the other, you know, three teams outside of Loyola definitely have, you know, played well all year. So, you know, not a huge surprise there, but I'm, I'm looking forward to a couple of good games. I know this sounds weird, but when you say that the other three teams looked good all year except for Loyola, Loyola only lost like five games, right? I mean, I, I know they play in the Missouri Valley, but um, that's got to count for something, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not to discredit Loyola by any means, man. I, I think that, uh, you know, they just have been under the radar, not, nas- not on the national stage like, you know, Kansas, Villanova, Michigan. Um, and even Michigan to an extent, you know, they they finished, what, third in the Big Ten during the regular season, so – you know, one of those teams that got hot in their conference tourney and, and uh, has made a, a deep run into the NCAA tourney. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you, because you know more than I do, is there anyone on Loyola's team that has a shot at, like, the next level? Uh, or is I mean, it kind of like a be- team by committee? I think as far as being drafted, I don't know if there's anybody that's going to go, you know, and actually get drafted in the two rounds of the draft. But, you know, when you make a run like this and you're playing on a huge stage and, and playing really well, um, you know, those guys definitely have a shot to, to play somewhere in the pros. I don't know about the NBA, but, you know, overseas, G League, you know, there's a million leagues out there outside the NBA. Yeah, true, true. What about uh, this game with Michigan? Uh, we'll talk about the, the one that I think everyone's going to be watching because Cinderella's in it. But uh, how do you think they stack against Michigan? I, I'm going to tell you my, my take at the beginning. I don't like Michigan strictly because there's a lot of tall white guys on their team. And it just seems like it, it literally like you watch it and it just looks like a bunch of Christian Leitners running around like they're but they're all blonde. They're all like Aryan. There's this weird thing going on with like a bunch of blonde, really tall white dudes. It kind of freaks me out watching basketball. 
Those tall blonde white dudes can ball though, man. <laughs> I know they're uh, du- they're dunking in like I don't know. They're when I watched them play Michigan State, they were really handing it to them. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, Loyal is twenty three and zero in the year uh, if they uh, lead at halftime, um, which is a pretty incredible stat. You know, I mean, they just do not give up leads in the second half. So I think it's you know it obviously hopefully is a tight game, um, and I hope Loyal is not you know, taken aback by the, the big stage, right? Because you're not going to get any more pressure than, than the Final Four. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can c- come out and shoot the ball like they did, you know, the past four games, I mean, they could be anybody in the country, including Kansas and Villanova. So, you know, I, I would give it a toss-up as far as Loyola and, and Michigan, you know, in that game. Um, potentially whoever gets off to a hot start has a, has a good chance to win it. Where's the Final Four at again? San Antonio. San Antonio. So, okay, so it's in a basketball stadium. Yeah, I think they're playing at the Alamo Dome. Okay. The Spurs used to play or still do play. Okay, because uh, I hate when they play in football stadiums because they're way too big and they always have like the the players below the floor. You know what I'm talking about? Where they have to like come out of the floor whenever they celebrate, and it always looks stupid. Like when yeah, they... and on on top of that too, man. I mean, you know, your depth perception with all that room behind the hoop um, has messed up a shooting in the past. Along with last year, I don't know if you remember or not, but. There were like 40 fouls in the first half of both of those games last year. So hopefully the refs can kind of swallow their whistle, let them play a little bit so there's a little more game flow. Yeah, especially because in college basketball, there's a lot more uh, driving to the hole, I would say. There's a lot more people in the lane. Um, so you kind of have to let players play. There's not as much – I don't feel like there's much space used in the NBA where it's kind of a little bit more obvious when there's a foul. Here there's just a lot of contact. And, and especially I, I expect the Michigan-Loyola game to definitely have some contact in it just – you know, because they're going to have to try to rough up and get the Michigan bigs in foul trouble because those guys are going to dominate the game if they're able to play the full length of the game, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing about Loyola that we've seen, you know, consistently throughout the tournament is is they're definitely a uh, well-rounded unit as far as the team goes on both ends. You know, offensively, they share the ball as well as anybody that played this year and, and defensively, you know. Um, I, 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 You know, we saw it against Kansas State. And in the next round, I mean, they just they just lock people down and keep people in front of them, make them shoot, make them shoot deep shots, and and you know go and get a, uh, good looks on the on the other end. So we'll see. I mean, it, I you know like I said, I think it's definitely a toss up. I wouldn't count either team out, but if Michigan's able to to basically you know guard the three point line and and uh, you know get a get good shots with their their big guys, I think Michigan probably comes out on top. But so who's uh, the- you'd be. Who's the player on Michigan that you you were uh, needs to have the best game to to I guess for Michigan to win the game is it is it Wagner? Yeah, I think Wagner. Um, you know, Wagner. the one thing that I noticed in their uh, you know game before that was uh, you know Simpson, their point guard, did a really good job of, of penetrating. Um, you know, Florida State could not keep him in front of them, um, and he just you know kicked it out to Wagner, kicked it out to Robinson. Um, you know, Abdul Rahman had a good game too, penetrating, but it all starts with their point guard Simpson. So, you know, uh, Loyola has a lot of good guards. I don't know if they can keep it in front, but if they can, you know, it, they have as, as good of a shot as Michigan as well. Yeah. Cause it, it looks like on the, uh, the matchup predictor on everything, it's kind of like a 75% at 25% picking, picking Michigan, which is an 11 versus three big 10 school versus Mississippi Valley or Missouri Valley. So kind of, You'd expect that, but uh, they expect uh, and also kind of expect a low score game. The over under is only one twenty nine, which is 
kind of low. I, I would think it would be higher scoring than that. But uh, Yeah. I think it goes back to the shooting, you know. It, it seems like in the Final Four, everybody uh, is a little tight to begin the game, and, you know, shooting percentages drop a little bit. So Yeah, they get um, under the lights. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, you're not going to feel that pressure anywhere except, you know, in the NBA and, and the next level. You know, there's nothing that will compare to – to the entire world watching you in the final four, you know, especially in a, on a Cinderella team like that. For sure. For sure. And so on the other side, we have one verse one Villanova versus Kansas. And for everyone listening to this, I have to let you know, Drew is a Homer right now. So whatever he picks, put it on that scale. Cause you're a huge, you're a huge Kansas fan. No, I'm a huge <laughs> Villanova fan. I don't think Villanova's going to win, man. I don't think I don't think the city of Philadelphia gets two championships in the same year. They can't handle that the douchebag meter going off that high in one year. They can't handle it. <laughs> well, I mean, going back to the Elite Eight, Kansas probably shouldn't even be there, should they? You know, you watch that that Duke game, and and uh, you know they miss a couple shots, and and uh, you know Kansas escapes. So, but that's we'll Duke. See. I mean, I think we'll we'll see. I think I think. Villanova plays a little bit better defense, um, but overall the team is definitely not as big as Duke, which you know definitely uh, definitely held up Kansas a little bit. Um, I hope Azubuki, you know, for Kansas, their big center doesn't have a, a massive game because that could be a, a turning point, you know. So, are people ready we'll for see. his athleticism? Because I know he's huge, but I don't think people expect him to be as quick as he is. Like his second jump is quicker than I think people think it is. Like he's not like. He, I'm not saying he's Porzingis, but he's athletic as hell. Yeah, him. yeah. I mean, he's he's one of those big guys that has really good footwork, and you know, is able to to not only overpower you, but you know, move around you and and use his post moves uh, to be very efficient. So we'll see. I mean, it, again, both of these games, you know, I think they're going to be really, hopefully, really good games. Um, the only thing that I really see in the Kansas Villanova game specifically is that Villanova shoots the ball. Um, you know, like they had the past two games, um, it should should be a Villanova win. But yeah. obviously, I'm a little biased there. Yeah, and so that's <laughs> that's the one thing that I was noticing because is you know while they are one and ones, I was thinking the exact same thing. I don't. I think if Villanova plays their best offensive game and Kansas plays their best offensive game, I think Villanova wins this hands down. I don't. You know, I don't think if they're both playing their A games, Kansas has a shot of beating Villanova. So I think the only thing that you can hope is that. Kansas's bigs just absolutely disrupt things and make it a much slower game than Villanova wants to play. Yeah, I think, you know, Kansas is not as offensively well-rounded as Villanova. Um, you know, all five guys on the on the floor for Villanova shoot a very high percentage, I think all over 30% from three. Um, you know, and they move the ball really well. Um, you know, Kansas, Devontae Graham, um, Malik Newman, uh, you know, Makai Luke, uh, and, and Azabuki – they don't quite, at least when I watch them, you know, as far as the eye test, I don't think they play as well together, but they may be a little bit more gifted, you know, one-on-one. So it's really going to be a battle of, I think, whoever defends the best. Um, but we'll, we'll see because even if, you know, Kansas uh, defends really well, if Villanova shoots the ball and hits shots, I don't know if anybody can beat them. Yeah, well, no matter what happens in the game, at least you'll know you'll have the most stylish coach on the sidelines. Guy single handedly, oh, yeah. guy single handedly brought the pinstripe pinstripe suit back from the dead. Oh yeah, that's my man crush. It's like <laughs> two thousand one for sure. <laughs> I know you have the same haircut. Whenever you used to get your haircut before you moved <laughs> out to Colorado and became a mountain man. Yeah, exactly. I look like a hippie now. So, well, I'm hey man. The... Well, hey man. I am 
excited to watch the game. I won't be rooting against you because Villanova doesn't play Miami this year in the tournament, which I rooted against <laughs> you last year, which didn't help anything. We didn't you know, actually beat you guys, so it doesn't matter. But I am... I will be rooting for your team. I hope that it's Villanova versus Loyola in the fi- in the final game, and then I think you'll feel pretty confident going into that one. But I hope I'm hoping for uh, Cinderella to keep running. I was gonna say since since uh, Loyola beat the hell out of Miami in the first round, you kind of got to pull for them now, don't you? Well, I kind of hope that they win anyway because it's been a long time since uh, a Cinderella's made it all the way to the final game. I think the last one was Butler versus Duke, and they missed on that last second shot that hit the front of the back or front of the rim. And that's the last mm-hmm. like real Cinderella I remember making that deep of a run. So I think it'd be really good. But the thing about the the reason that Cinderellas are so rare is because whenever they get to that final game, it usually is just the talent just overwhelms them when it comes to depth, and they're just able to run six to seven players out there, and they only really have you know their five that are contenders. Yeah. So. Yeah, it should be, I mean, it's definitely a good Final Four, I think. It's been a really good tournament as far as the quality of play and – you know, like you said, it's always good to see a Cinderella. It definitely brings a lot of, you know, intrigue and interest into the the last couple of games. So absolutely, it's a good cap to the season. Yeah, absolutely, and I think this, you know, might be one of the. I think this might be one of or the last years that we'll see college basketball look like it looks right now. I think that with the NBA changing, I think possibly changing some of the rules that they have on the one and done or getting rid of it or making it two years or whatever, they change it. And then also with some of the sanctions, and I think some of the NCAA regulations are going to happen over the next few years, I think it's going to drastically change college basketball. So I think uh, we should appreciate what we have. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think uh, that that higher-level recruit decommitted from Syracuse actually today to go in the G League. So it could be the last time we see, uh, you know, some some really high-level recruits uh, in the tournament. So. Yeah, I, a good one. before I let you go, Bill Simmons is someone that I listen to a lot, and he has been hyping the hell out of, why don't we just make the G League 30 teams and make it like a semi-pro league and like a minor league and just put the most talented kids in there and let them develop and then bring them up as we need them? What do you think about that? I mean, you're a huge college basketball fan, so I know you don't want that to happen, but I think th- they've pitched that and they've also pitched – like making instead of college athletics being student athletes, just make them like club sports so that they don't actually have to pl- go to the school. They're just the club team and something like that. There's some things that are being pitched around because these, especially in basketball, these kids aren't even there for a full year. I mean, I obviously want the college game to go on. You know, I think the NCAA tournament's one of the better sporting events that we have in general overall. Um, but as far as, you know, the quality of the game and the skill level of the game, you know, college, I think, is definitely, uh, you know, certain teams, and we talked about this last time, have, have taken advantage of it, and re- the rest of them don't even recruit one and dones anymore. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, and, and you know, I always look at it, too, as, you know, it's, NCAA basketball is a billion-dollar industry, and these kids aren't getting paid. I can't really hate on them for, you know, wanting to get paid when people are making money off their names and, and what their actions are. So I definitely think the system is broken. I think the NCAA is very corrupt. Um, so, you know, maybe they need that, that kind of kick in the behind to get going and, and change some of the rules and maybe start giving some sort of compensation to these players. I don't, I don't necessarily think that would be a bad thing for the game, especially if, you know, those high school kids see that they can get paid and get their education. Uh, you know, probably, probably incentivize a lot more to stay a little bit longer as well. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you have your, your – your your best cases and your worst cases. I mean, you look at people that have come straight out of high school and the success they've had, but at the same time, 
before there were people coming straight out of high school and the ones that did it were the ones that at least believed or knew where they were going to make it, you know, or they were going to have a chance of getting drafted. I feel like the kids that go in one and done, it's because that I feel like there's so many kids doing one and done strictly because they, they have to. Whereas before, if you didn't go out of high school, you were going to be in college for a couple of years and it was probably going to be developmental. It was probably for the better of you. I feel like we ended up with a better product coming into the NBA than sometimes we have with these with the 19-year-old kids coming in? I definitely would, would not debate that, man. I think, you know, three, four years in college, not only are, are a lot of those guys developing, you know, physically, but, but mentally as men. So, you know, from a, from a mental standpoint, you know, when you get to the NBA, that's what separates out a lot of the great NBA players, you know, because all those guys are freak athletes mostly, right? So, you know, I think it would definitely benefit if, if you know, instead of having the one-and-done guys, those guys go straight to the G League, start to get that pro experience, play against tougher competition. And then you start to see guys stay at four years, and, and it's a lot more of, of the guys like, you know, at Loyola or Villanova that have been there and, and have really, really gotten better since they've been on campus. So I, I think it's a good idea personally, but, you know, I'm sure there will be a lot of debate about that, and, and the NCAA will probably push back pretty hard, so. We'll okay. see what happens, but I'm, I'm I'm glad there's some change, you know, being thought of because if it stays the way it is right now, NCAA basketball will probably not be around in you know 20 years. For sure, for sure. Well, Drew, thank you for coming on uh, and interrupting your Thursday evening. But uh, as always, man, we love having you on the show and enjoy the weekend. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Have All a right. good one. See you, buddy. Later.